Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Department of Danger by Jack Lancer. Volume 4, Chapter 10, The Contact Problem. The Department of Danger? There was something about the words that sent a faint chill down Chris's spine. Again, Geronimo's eyes met Chris's. Are you thinking the same thing I'm thinking, Chunde? Package I was supposed to pick up for Nikos? The Apache nodded. Toad's always in the market for useful terror gimmicks. Maybe the package had something to do with this biological warfare weapon. Yes, a most disturbing thought, said Foliot with a frown. There also is the possibility, Chris suggested, that the Drakoff agent or agents may have snatched the package from Lustig last night. An equally disturbing thought says Drakov might well sell the formula to one of our enemies. Foliot rubbed his lantern jaw worriedly. I should say Kingston won that our best bet is for you to carry on with your mission in spite of what has happened to you. You mean try to make contact with Drakov? Or British Toad? As a matter of fact, Chris said dryly, I was about to meet Drakov himself at the British Museum just before the flying squad picked me up. How oh, very vexing, laddie. Still, these little bungles do occur, Folia chuckled. One must press forward, chin up, and shoulder to the wheel. Tell me, have any attempts been made on your life since you arrived in London? Yes, at least one, maybe two. Chris told him about the booby-trap telephone and his encounter with the rat. In that case, I fear Toad may already be trying to kill you. You mean because their operations fouled up? Chris queried. Exactly. Even before you left the States. I'm told that several underlings were captured, their courier nabbed at Kennedy Airport. And why did the FBI let him go? Bit fishy. But how it's apt to strike Toad. For all they know, he's been subverted, safer to kill the chap and take no chances. After all, the dead men couriers are expendable. Could be, Chris agreed. However, that's a risk you'll have to take. The important thing is to make contact first, then try to talk away their suspicions. Great. Chris's voice was a trifle tart. And how do you propose I do that? Make contact, I mean, now that Lustig's out of action. Well, now, let's put ourselves in Gorse's place and think what he might do in just such a situation. For one thing, I should think he might phone Nikos back in the States and ask for new orders. Chris shook his head. No dice. Gorse told us under truth serum he had no phone number or address for contacting Nikos. He was simply supposed to deliver the package to a cabin in Maine. Then he'd be in just as tight of a spot as you were. R, Chris corrected dryly. Fully had drummed his fingers on the desk. In that case, laddie, I would suggest two possible moves. First, there's a discotheque here in London called Queenie's. 
which we strongly suspect is a hangout and meeting place for Toad members. You might go there and see if any Toad agent contacts you. It's not likely, though, that Gorse would know about the place. True again, but if he had mingled with the London underworld while he was dodging the police, he might have heard a few whispers about it. Anyway, second, Folliot went on, he might put a carefully worded ad in the personal column in the Herald on the chance that someone in Toad would notice it. Picking up a pencil, Folliot thought a while, and then dashed off the following message which he handed to Chris. Mr. Diamond, advice on rare insects needed urgently by friend of Nikos. Chris read the message and nodded approvingly, then passed it on to Geronimo. Very good. It'll need a phone number to call, of course, or some other way to get in touch. Right, said Folian, which brings up the question of where you're to stay in the meantime. A hotel won't do. I'm afraid even if you wear a disguise, since they're bound to check on your passport, some cheap lodging house would be more natural, where the landlady doesn't bother with that sort of thing. Soon you'll find a place, notify me of your phone number, and I'll attend to the Herald notice. On a sudden afterthought, Chris asked Foliot about the Duchess of Soho. She wouldn't be an enemy agent by any chance. Or is she just some con artist or an eccentric? That's a new one on me. Don't believe I've ever heard of her. However, I'll check with Scotland Yard. Belatedly, Chris realized he might have asked Q the same question. Geronimo was driven back to his hotel while Chris slept until morning on a makeshift cot in the Department of Danger offices. Next morning, he found that his suitcase and other belongings had been brought by the flying squad car. After breakfasting on coffee and buns, Chris reapplied his disguise and sauntered off into the London scene, clutching his suitcase. He bought a morning newspaper and found a table at a restaurant where he could study the rooming house ads. The paper carried a brief front-page item, headed, Hatton Garden Attacker Escapes from Hospital. Chris grinned wryly and was about to leaf through the pages in search of the classified advertisements. Suddenly his eye fell on another news story. It was headed, Vicious Monster Reported at Large in Kent. Chapter 11. The Face Behind the Gun there was a startled expression on Chris's face as he read the newspaper account. It told how a farmer in Kent named Arthur Simpson had been attacked the night before by some vicious unknown creature. Simpson was almost incoherent when he reached the nearest home and could give only a confused description of the animal which had attacked him in the darkness. He said it was about the size of a hog with needle-sharp teeth and claw-like feet. He was taken to Wardley Hospital and is still under sedation. Doctors had described his wounds as severe. Rumours of a savage beast at large in the area have been circulating for the past ten days. Simpson appears to be the first human to encounter the creature, but numerous attacks on sheep and other livestock have been reported. Not quite the first human, Chris thought grimly. Wong Xiu beat him to it. The news story went on to suggest likely explanations. An escaped circus or zoo animal, a wild dog, perhaps even a large hawk or eagle. Maybe, Chris mused. But what about Eli Lustig? 
Is it possible a hawk flew down his chimney? On the other hand, Lustig's wounds had not been nearly so bad as Simpson's or Wong Su's. Besides, he had heard footsteps at the jeweler's house. Thinking about Lustig reminded Chris of Drakoff. He finished his coffee and picked out one or two likely rooming house ads, then went to a phone booth in a corner of the restaurant and dialed Bowler Hat's number. A woman's voice answered. May I speak to Mr. Paveni, please? Chris asked. Sorry, he's no longer here. You mean he's gone out for the day? I mean, he checked out last night. Packed up and left, he did. This is the landlady speaking. What about a forwarding address? Sorry, didn't leave none. And I've no idea how to get in touch. Chris fumed in frustration. But, but this is terribly urgent. Almost a matter of life and death. Can't you think of any way that I might reach him? Any place? Any of his friends you might know? Well... The voice softened somewhat as the usual cockney good nature came through. There was one thing I noticed when I cleaned up his room. Hang on a sec. Presently she returned to the phone. I did find this scrap of paper with a name and address on it. Musgrave, Gunsmith. Name of a shop, I expect. She read off the address in St. James Street. Chris copied down the information. Thanks. I really appreciate this. Chris paid his bill and decided to go to the gunsmith shop as soon as he had rented a room. He caught an underground train and got off at Sloan Square in Chelsea, an arty bohemian district, somewhat like New York's Greenwich Village. Heading into King's Road, which led off from the square, Chris eyed the passers-by with interest. Young men with beards, side whiskers, hair longer than Geronimo's, girls in short skirts, and colorful, kinky stockings. Chris asked a youth for directions to the addresses given in the rooming house ads. Following the direction which led him through a warren of side streets, he finally came to a tall, narrow, gray Victorian tenement house. A sharp-eyed but loudish-looking boy answered the bell. What you want? I understand you've got a room to let here? I'll have to speak to me mum about that. With a grudging air, he allowed Chris to enter the musty foyer hung with red plush drapes. Presently, the landlady appeared, a small, sparrow-like woman. Chris introduced himself as Charles Cass and learned that her name was Mrs. Snite. She glanced at Chris's dark sunglasses, then at his suitcase. Are you an artist? No, ma'am, a student. Mrs. Snite sniffed. Very well, follow me. Her son tagged along behind as they started up the staircase. Mrs. Knight stopped him with a cuff on the ear. Was it talking to you, Bert? On the third floor, she showed Chris a tiny bed-sitting room at the end of the hall and named the weekly rent. In advance, please. Chris started to count out the money, then paused. Um, by the way, is there a phone here? First floor, hall. He asked for the number and jotted it down, explaining, I'm trying to locate a friend in London, so I may get one or two phone messages. If the caller doesn't know me by name, he may just ask for a friend of Nikos. Mrs. Snipe nodded and sniffed as she went out. Chris unpacked and settled into his room, then left the house 
and headed back to King's Road. From a telephone call box, he rang Foliot and gave him the lodging house phone number to insert in the personal column ad. It'll be in the afternoon, Herald, Foliot promised. Short notice, isn't it? Don't worry about that. We're the Department of Danger, old boy. By the way, Chris added, do you see that story about the Kent monster in the morning news? I did, as a matter of fact. It happened quite close to where our Chinese friend was found. After his conversation with Foliot, Chris called Geronimo. He gave him his new address and phone number, and they made arrangements to meet later at Trafalgar Square. Then he took an underground train to Piccadilly Circus and walked down Piccadilly to St. James. Musgrave's gunsmith shop had the same plush aristocratic air as the famous London Gentlemen's Clubs, whose rooms overlooked the street nearby. The name was spelled out in brass letters above the shop. Chris pushed open the door and went inside, his footsteps sinking into the deep pile carpeting. Racks of rifles and shotguns with polished walnut stocks, some with gleaming damascened barrels, lined the walls. Above were mounted big game heads and framed sporting prints. Two customers were being waited on. One was a slim, elegant young man who was saying something about a grouse shoot in Scotland, and the other was a thick-set, ruddy-faced fellow with a bristly military mustache who was trying out a rifle. He clamped the gunstock to his shoulder and the magazine to his cheek as he squinted through the sight. Another clerk came out of the back room to greet Chris. May I help you, sir? I hope so. I'm trying to locate a Mr. Pavani. Alfred E. Pavani? The military man's rifle swung around sharply, and Chris found himself staring down the business end. Its bore looked big enough for an elephant gun, and a pair of beady eyes stared at Chris from the other end. Chris stared back, and the rifle muscle dropped abruptly. Oh, sorry, dear chap. Didn't mean to startle you. You didn't, Chris said pleasantly. The ruddy-faced gunner cleared his throat. Ugh! In point of fact, you startled me, sir. That name, Pavenny, Alfred Pavenny. I have a very dear friend by that name. I wonder if it might be the same chap. I don't know. What's your friend like? Little. Prim. Dresses like a city clerk. Hardly ever see him without an umbrella. That's the man, Chris said. Can you tell me how to get in touch with him? I might. Haven't seen Alf in a few years. I dare say I can run him to earth for you if your business is urgent. It is. It's very urgent, Chris replied. The ruddy-faced man reached inside his tweed jacket and drew out a small leather case from his tattersall-checked vest and plucked out a card which he handed to Chris. It read, Marmaduke Buttram, O.B.E., Lieutenant Colonel, Retired, H.M. Coldstream Guards. How do you do, sir? Chris said. I don't have a card myself, but my name is Charles Cass. I'm just visiting over here. Enjoying your stay, I trust. Now then, is there some way I can reach you? Chris jotted down his phone number on a slip of paper borrowed from the clerk, who said, Then you're all taken care of, sir. Yes, thank you, unless you know Mr. Pavani. Well, I don't recall that name, sir. Did you expect to find him on staff here? I'm not really sure, Chris said. 
I was just given to understand he might be known here at Musgraves. Dear me, I don't believe so, but I shall be glad to check our list of customers. Don't bother, Colonel Butcham said heartily. Poor old Alf wouldn't know one end of a foul shooting piece from the other. I can assure you, he's no patron of Musgraves. After a parting handclasp, Chris walked up Pall Mall to Trafalgar Square, where he met Geronimo near the tall column topped by the figure of April Nelson. The boys spent the next two hours in the nearby National Gallery, and they then treated themselves to a long lunch. When they came out of the restaurant, Chris bought an afternoon London Herald. The Mr. Diamond notice had been inserted in the personal column. So far, so good, said Chris. Let's go back to my rooming house and see what develops. The boys were just settling down in Chris's room when young Bert Snight rapped on the door. Call for ya, he announced. Chris hurried to the telephone in the first floor hall. Hello? Are you a friend of Nico's? said the man on the other end of the line. That's right, from New York. Good, I have the information you want. Chapter 12. A Bottle of Fireflies Chris's heart leapt. Someone was snapping at the bait. Where are you? The man went on. I'll come and get you. Chris's brain did a microsecond calculation of risks. If Gorse were in this situation, he would certainly sniff the air a few times before poking his nose out. I think I'd prefer to meet in some public place. You could bring the package there. The man hesitated before replying. There's been a slight hitch about the package. We'll have to talk it over. All right, let's say tomorrow in front of Buckingham Palace. The changing of the guard. I'll be standing near the fence, just to the right of the main gate. Who should I look for? You won't, said the man coldly. I'll look for you. Suit yourself. I'll be wearing dark glasses. Just reverse the password procedure. Chris purposely refrained from mentioning the rare insect bit. Good enough. And the receiver clicked. Chris walked back through the hall toward the staircase. Entering his third-floor room, Chris found Geronimo lounging by the window, looking down through the curtains at the street. He told the Apache about the call. You'd think it was the real McCoy, shouldn't they? Geronimo asked. Or somebody trying to deal himself in. Chris shrugged. I don't know. Just have to wait and see if I get any more calls. If this guy was a toad man, there's no telling what he has in mind. Maybe a hole between the eyes. The boys killed time playing rummy. An hour later, Chris was summoned to the phone again. This is not Mr. Diamond speaking. The voice was deep and hoarse, but unmistakably female. No, I gathered that, said Chris. His pulse had just taken a quick skid. Unless his ear was playing tricks, the caller was Agatha, Duchess of Soho. It happens. I'm a devoted reader of the personal column, she went on. My eye was caught at once by your mention of insects. Insects, my good man. I wonder if you realize the terrible danger which these vermin pose to us all. I'm not sure that I do, Chris said. 
Ah, but I and my fellow workers are aware, fully aware of the insect peril. Our counter-insect association has been expressly set up to alert the world and give advice on such matters. By the way, she added querulously, your voice sounds familiar, young man. Have we met before? It's possible, Chris evaded. Anyway, I'll be happy to talk with you. You may have just the advice I need. What's the address of your organization? Oh, we don't have a formal address, but I am Agatha, Duchess of Soho. You can find me tomorrow afternoon at three o'clock at the Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. I frequently devote time to public speaking in my effort to arouse the British people to the insect crisis. I'll be there, Chris promised. Chris went back upstairs thoughtfully. What was the old gal? A kook? An agent? It had to be more than just a coincidence running up against her twice in a city the size of London. Chris stopped short as he went into his room. Geronimo was poised watchfully near the window. It was obvious his Apache radar was at work. What's going on? Chris murmured. Not much, Shunde. Maybe nothing. But a car's been parked down the end of the block ever since you took that first call, and no one has gotten in or out of it. Chris strode to the window. This side of the building looked out over a low stucco house, giving a partial view of the street that ran in front of Mrs. Snyth's rooming house. The car was a dark gray Humber. A man was at the wheel, but it was impossible to see his features. Geronimo moved away from the window. We call Sachet down there and have a look. No fire arrows, please, Chris said uneasily. He watched at the window until his buddy came into view on the street below. The Indian walked casually toward the parked car. Geronimo was still a few yards from the Humber when the car started with a sudden roar and a billowing blast of blue exhaust smoke. Geronimo staggered and whirled around to avoid the smoke, then pitched forward onto his face. Chris rushed out of his room and down the staircase. When he reached the street, it was empty of cars and pedestrians. Most of the smoke had lifted and only a faint bluish haze remained. Geronimo was getting to his feet. His necktie had been ripped open and was plastered over his nose and mouth to form an emergency gas mask. Chris rushed to him. Are you all right, Jerry? Okay. A little woozy, that's all. I managed to get the mask on before I inhaled too much of that goof gas. Geronimo berated himself grumpily in Apache as he smoothed out his tie. I sure walked into that one, and I was so busy keeping my eye on that guy in the car, I didn't even get his license number. What'd he look like? Tall, I think, and dark. He didn't turn his face. He was watching the rearview mirror. Never mind. At least we're forewarned that my Pueblo has been spotted. The boys walked a few blocks to clear Geronimo's head and then came back. They had just entered the foyer when the hall telephone rang. Mrs. Snyth's head popped out of her room as Chris strode to answer it. Hello? Cool. Who's speaking? Paveni. El Paveni. Oh, I see. Colonel Buttram gave you my number, did he? Buttram? Paveni sounded startled. Yeah, I went looking for you at Musgraves, and I ran into him there, Chris explained. He said you were an old friend. There was a brief, strained silence. 
Honor the gent, then he said at last. But that's not how you got my number. No, the Drokhoff network traced you from that notice in the Herald. Well, well, very clever. How'd they manage that? No trick to that, me lad. Mr. Diamond. Who else but Lustig? He was a Toad director. That friend of Nico's bit spelled Toad, right enough. There was a dead cert you'd been needing urgent advice with every copper in London looking for you. That's why the network was watching the personal column. I see. Suddenly Chris sensed himself treading into a deadly morass of danger and suspicion. If he ever did contact Drakoff, he would now have to explain his involvement with Toad. No doubt your control knows about me getting picked up at the British Museum. They do. They also read in the paper about you escaping from the hospital. Now then, did you still want to meet Drakoff? Definitely. Where and how soon? Then he asked. Sooner the better, Chris hesitated. He had planned on going to Queenie's discotheque around ten. Perhaps he could meet the Drakoff man nearby later. Eleven thirty tonight, he told the man, and gave a cafe on Shepherd Market as their meeting place. But then he hung up. Two hours later, the teen agents started out from the lodging house on foot. They kept an alert eye out, but no one appeared to be following. In King's Row, they stopped at a restaurant. While they were eating, Geronimo asked, You intend to keep your disguise on at the disco, Chunde? I have to, Chris replied. Somebody might spot me and call a Bobby. What about Toad? If you want them to spot you, you'll have to risk showing your own face. Chris scowled as he sipped his coffee. You have a point there. Maybe I should at least ditch the dark glasses. Suddenly broke into a grin. Tell you what, I'll carry a lighted sign. Chris added a generous tip when they paid the bill and asked the waiter for an empty bottle from the kitchen. Leaving the restaurant, the boys hailed a taxi and got off at Hyde Park Corner. Chris led the way into the park, now shrouded in soft moonlit darkness. I hope you know what you're doing, Chunde. "'Cause I sure don't. "'You'll see.' "'As Chris had hoped, a few fireflies "'could be seen glimmering here and there "'among the greenery. "'He caught several and put them in the bottle "'and corked it. "'The Apache stared at him. "'That's your lighted sign,' Chris grinned. "'Why not? "'London's full of eccentrics. "'Who's going to object if I carry around "'a few pet insects?' "'The boys walked to Shepherd Market in Mayfair.' an alley-like maze of shops and cafes. Here they found the entrance to Queenie's. After signing the guest register, they were ushered down a flight of steps into a crowded, dimly-lit room. The walls were decorated with rainbow-colored op-art designs, and the room throbbed with a deafening blare of music from the stereo speakers. Couples were writhing and gyrating on the dance floor. The two boys were shown to one of the low tables. Chris removed his dark glasses and set out his bottle of fireflies in plain sight. The twinkling insects drew several joking remarks from people at the surrounding tables. Chris merely smiled in response. A blonde girl in a fluorescent pink dress approached. She was wearing purple-lensed, rhinestone-studded harlequin glasses, which gave her face the appearance of a huge insect. On her dress was a flower-like pin. 
I say, would you like to dance? She asked Chris. My pleasure. He bounced up from his chair, and they moved out to join the other dancers. The girl's inviting smile changed to a tense, wary expression. You're Chris Cool, aren't you? She asked abruptly. Chris nodded, his eyes watchful. Don't you realize you're in terrible danger here? It was a statement, not a question. Chris felt a faint chill of fear, but his voice remained casual. Really? From home? The smile came back on the girl's lips, this time cold and menacing. From me, she replied sweetly. This pin on my dress is a miniature poison dart gun, and it's aimed right at you.